I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And these are our incredible stories. In January 1961, New York City was experiencing the coldest winter in 28 years. Folk singer Bob Dylan knew how cold it was. Wait, hold on one second. You're talking about Bob Dylan. Uh, does this mean you knew Bob Dylan? <laughs> well, I wish it did, but uh, it doesn't. Uh, <clears throat> I never did... Uh, meet Bob Dylan, but of course I did spend a lot of time with Peter, Paul, and Mary, who by the way also arrived in New York City in January 1961 during this incredibly cold winter. Uh, Bob Dylan, his situation was that uh, he arrived actually on uh, January 24th of that year. He had just dropped out of the University of Minnesota and he walked into the Café Wa at uh, 115 McDougal Street in New York City. What, wait, what was the name of that place again? Cafe Wah. Cafe Wah? W-H-A question mark. Wah. Now, is it is that in the title? You have to have that emphasis when you... <laughs> and nobody knows the restaurant unless you say it, Cafe Wah? Yeah. And uh, who knows? I, I'm not sure if it's even there today. But incredibly, uh, the other people who were playing there included Noel Paul, Paul Stuckey and Peter Yarrow. Of Peter, Paul, and Mary. Yes. And living nearby, after moving to New York from Kentucky, was Mary Travers. And she and Yarrow and Stuckey performed together as Peter, Paul, and Mary for the first time at a place called The Bitter End in 1961. Oh. <clears throat> now, how does Bob Dylan feature into all of this. Well, I was going to ask that because you keep mentioning his name quite a bit. Yeah. I feel like you guys were uh, roommates in college. Uh, not quite. Uh, I lived in a New Jersey suburb at the time, and my high school friends and I uh, would spend Sunday afternoons over in Greenwich Village, which is where the Cafe Wa is located, and mm. the, the Bitter End. And we would go over and we would play chess with some of the residents who are out on the sidewalk outside of there. Residents. Okay. And uh, it was back in a time when, you know, uh, strangers weren't worried about strangers. And, uh, you know, you engaged in a friendly game of chess with uh, somebody just walking down the street and seeing them there with their uh, chessboard. Mm. And so one of my high school friends was named uh, Tom Lipitsky. He was uh, a music student, uh, very interested in music. And his dream was to go on to the Juilliard School of Music there in New York City. Oh, big school. Way, way big. And he had uh, the only car that we had amongst us. It was a tiny little Volkswagen Bug. And so we would go over in his little tiny Volkswagen Bug. And I remember one day when it was uh, pretty difficult to find a parking place there. So all four of us just got out of the Bug, picked mm -hmm. up the car, and placed it in the parking space. <laughs> now, I can only imagine how it must have looked to most people, although it was probably not that strange to see 
or college students uh, grabbing a corner of a Volkswagen Beetle and shuffling it over into a spot that was too small to parallel park in. Right. And, of course, we were high school students. Oh, high school. I'm sorry, high school students. Not college students. But anyways, uh, I remember that incident very vividly. And so uh, when we were preparing to do this podcast, I began thinking, um, those were the very same days, like I say, when uh, Bob Dylan arrived in New York City. When you were in Greenwich Village playing chess with beatniks. Yes, right in that very same area where we were playing chess. So Mm -hmm. he wasn't famous. He was a, a college dropout. He wasn't famous at all. So he could easily gary he could easily have been walking down the sidewalk at any time when we were yeah. playing chess with other people in the, he could have been one of the people playing chess i was just gonna say you may have played chess bob dylan, with bob dylan. uh in a game of chess yeah. it's possible because again he was uh, an unknown he was a nobody at that point but he was right there in that area mm-hmm. at that time so it's always fun to think back and think what if or, or maybe. Oh, yeah. And so that's kind of how Bob Dylan featured into our uh, podcast this, this evening. Okay, well, that's interesting. Uh, so in a roundabout way, um, is this uh, a lead-in to uh, talk about uh, your connection with the, uh, the other group that was mentioned uh, a few minutes ago? Peter, Paul, and Mary, yes. Um, four years later... Uh, 1965, I would end up spending some quality time with Peter, Paul, and Mary, and they did indeed get to know me, and by that time, they too were very famous. Yes. So uh, along with Bob Dylan four years later, of course, they were all famous. But uh, it happened uh, this way, Gary. I was a college student at uh, the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, and I worked for the college radio station for a little bit. It was called WCWM. And here's what happened there. As a freshman, I said, you know, how is it I could uh, distinguish myself a little bit from all the rest of the people who are brand new on this campus? And so I said, let me, let me see about working with the radio station, the college radio station. Everybody wanted to be a disc jockey. So <clears throat> I, I quickly realized that you had to be probably a a junior maybe with uh, having paid your dues before you could get on the air and be a disc Oh, junkie. sure, sure. But they had a, an open position that nobody wanted, <clears throat> and it was um, called Director of Classical Music. And for the most part, WCWM did play classical music, and so uh, I accepted it. And the funny thing is I got a tiny little private office in the Phi Beta Kappa building there on the campus of William & Mary, and... Uh, I had my own private office as a freshman student there at, at William & Mary as the director of classical music. And, all, and what I did is I put uh, together uh, the different programs, what piece would be played on what program and what have you, you know, looking at all the albums in the in the record library. And so I did that for about a year. And then I was able to move on to the um, commercial radio station in Williamsburg. It was called a WBCI. And at that point, <clears throat> I became a, a disc jockey. Mm. And uh, so in the spring of 1965, uh, there was a college student who was promoting concerts there at the college. His name was Steve Kirkaroo. And in 1965, he brought in Peter, Paul, and Mary. Oh, and now the connection is clear. 
Well, sort of. Uh, okay. He worked for WCWM, the college station. Uh-huh. I was working for the commercial station in town. Right. Now, were and, you friends with Steve Kirkaroo? Yes, uh, I knew Steve, and uh, we got along very well. And so, consequently, he was very gracious, and so he allowed me to um, be part of the backstage activities with Peter, Paul, and Mary. So I was able to record uh, a number of clips of them, not only uh, interviews with them, but promotions for my radio show. Hi, this is Peter, Paul, and Mary, and I'm on your show, uh, you know. And then I would play a record of theirs after they right. announced that, you know, on tape. So um, they cut some promos for me, and, and I have these beautiful interviews. And the, the main thing uh, that I really got out of it, though, was about a three-hour, high-quality, one-on-one discussion, conversation with Mary Travers before the show. We spent a lot of time together. Yeah, but that wasn't... Uh, now, if I remember correctly, though, you, you had just a separate conversation with her because she was feeling a lot of stress from all the traveling and everything like that and just needed uh, an ear to vent into, and you uh, were gracious enough to um, lend her your ear and some of your time so that she could just vent some of her, you know, frustrations. Yeah, and the... In the course of the conversation, uh, she, she really just vented everything that was on her mind. Mm-hmm. And she had to do that because once she completely uh, got rid of all of this conversation and these things that were weighing on her mm-hmm. mind, then she was able to concentrate on her performance. And she went on and did a dynamite concert on stage. And you'd never know that anything other than the music was on her mind. But uh, some of the things that we talked about, uh, Gary, she was... She uh, told me that she was very, very paranoid about flying. Right, because this was 1965, and it was, what, maybe 10 years or 11 years ago uh, before that that the Big Bopper and Richie Valens had perished in their uh, fatal plane crash. Yeah, along with Buddy Holly, and it was less than 10 years. It was, uh, well, maybe Was it the 60s? They died died in a plane crash in the late 50s, and, and so it was recent enough to where it was still something on our mind. It would be a concern of somebody who was doing the very same thing they did, mm-hmm. flying from this place to that place, this venue to right. that venue, and performing. Uh, she couldn't help but uh, see the similarities. Sure, so, sure. So, uh, you know, if uh, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper, and all of those guys were, you know, in their mm-hmm. 20s, uh, they... Uh. they their lives were cut so short. Yeah. Richie Valens was uh, even younger than his 20s. I think he was, what, 16? Yeah, 16 was, or 17 when he, he, uh, he may died have, He may have still been a teenager at yeah. the time. I know the big bopper who sounded very, uh, very mature. He was only 24. J.P. Richards was mm-hmm. his real name. And so uh, this was on her mind. Sure. And so she just had to talk about it. And so we talked about it at great length and... I don't know, she found me an interesting conversationalist, and we got along real well, and we went back and forth like you and I are going now. Sure, sure. And she felt very relaxed to share these things. And uh, another thing, and of course, my tape recorder wasn't going uh, when we were doing this, absolutely not. No, 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 I mean, this, this was, was just private, one This one-on-one. was something very personal and uh, something that she needed done, and I did not mind not having the tape recorder going. And so one of the things she did mention, too, was... She was having a little bit of marital dif- difficulty at the time. And, you know, that's, that's especially uh, natural when one mm-hmm. of the partners is on the road all the time. Of course. And then you don't see them for long periods of time. 
that caused that was causing a lot of stress in her life and her marriage. And so she was married at the time to a fellow named Barry Feinstein. Barry was a professional photographer in New York City, and he did all of the cover photos for their early albums. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, with I'm not going to go into all the details of her marital difficulty either, but suffice it to say that um, she was happy to have somebody just to mm-hmm. vent with. Sure. Somebody who seemed to be empathetic, sympathetic, and, uh, and she chose me, and I was really thrilled and honored to be the one she chose to do this with. And like I say, after we were finished, and it, it ran for about three hours that we were talking, she wow. just got on that stage and she just belted those songs out like mm-hmm. like uh, you wouldn't believe. So I, I will always remember that. These are some of the uh, fondest memories I have of my days back then. Now, uh, we actually have the recording of the interview that was taken with all three members. Yes, and uh, that interview I was able to use on my local radio show. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, years later, when I was a graduate student in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, uh, I was uh, studying at the University of Southern Mississippi as a graduate student. I entered that interview, I made a little special uh, radio documentary and entered that interview in competition with the Mississippi Press Association and won an award. Oh, (laughs) look at you with your gold star. (laughs) So these interviews have seen some airtime back in the day. And now, now, 55 years after this was recorded, you, our listeners, are going to hear the voices of Peter, Paul, and Mary, mm-hmm. only four years after they first arrived on that bitter cold winter in 1961 in New Isn't York that's City. that's something. And we're going to hear you as a young man in your 20s. Ooh, let's see. All that. right, let's fire this up. Peter, Paul, and Mary, America's number one folk singing group. Peter, uh, we understand that you're the group's philosopher. Is this true? Uh, we're, we, each of us, uh, you'll find it fairly articulate, but uh, I'm put it this way, Paul's sense of humor it transcends his, uh, his serious behavior in a sense, and I think Mary's uh, femininity transcends her seriousness sometimes too, so I guess I'm the serious member of the group. The serious member of the group. How did you get started promoting? Uh, did you uh, start with college concerts? Yeah, well, I didn't get started promoting concerts, although I did run a folk song club which ran some concerts <coughs> but <coughs> my involvement as a instru- with an instructorship in my senior year at Cornell was really my entree into an involvement with folk music in terms of uh, not only its emotional uh, <coughs> its emotional appeal to myself but also in terms of the uh, historical academic appeal <coughs> and it was at that point that I began to think in terms of the possibility of taking a year off from college and singing, and of course, that's what I did, and of course, it blossomed into something much bigger than I had ever expected to, in terms of my own life and in terms of the satisfaction and involvement with the group. Yeah, right. How did uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary get started? Uh, Quite a few people uh, wonder about that. How did you all come together? Uh, Well, we were individual performers, and Mary made records when she was uh, 12 or 13 with Pete Seeger and... (coughs) was well known in the field in a sense for those pe- you know there was a time that folk music was known <coughs> to very few uh, people in in the sense that it's now known in the sense of the urban revival but uh, Paul was on his way to becoming a successful performer comedian etc and I was uh, 
performing individually myself. <coughs> so um, our manager introduced us to one another. He's the person who discovered Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, Odetta, uh, Ian and Sylvia, Bob Gibson, and he's a remarkable person. And uh, we owe a great debt of gratitude to him for having protected us from having to ever compromise our feelings about music. <coughs> we maintain complete responsibility for whatever we do on the stage because we are subject to no one's whim but our own. And that's very fortunate. You know, we've had success without having to, uh, in any way, um, prostitute our points of view. Uh, as far as your music goes, uh, you're, uh, you use quite a bit of Bob Dylan material, don't you? Yeah, that's true. I mean, before Bobby was writing, you know, the, we, we had released our first album, and right, that was yes. the release of Hammer and Puff. And as a matter of fact, two albums, and then <coughs> Blowing in the Wind came along. He's a remarkable writer. He's the best contemporary writer, in my opinion. There you have it, uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary from 55 years ago. Now, Gary... Uh, for our younger listeners, can you recall some of the songs that Peter, Paul, and Mary recorded? Oh, yeah. Uh, Puff the Magic Dragon, uh, If I Had a Hammer, um, Leaving on a Jet Plane. Um, blowing in the Wind. Yep, Blowing in the Wind, 500 Miles. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of them. One of my favorites was Stewball. Stewball oh, Stewball, yep. Uh, Lemon Tree. <laughs> yeah. So they they had some uh, some real classics there. Yeah, and in fact, in 1963, they performed "If I Had a Hammer" and "Blowing in the Wind" at the 1963 March on Washington, where the Reverend Martin Luther King gave his "I Have a Dream" speech. They gave it at that march. Yes, they did. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. So they sang uh, those two songs at the March on Washington in 1963. So they uh, they have uh, an incredible background historically and musically and tonight we've heard voices from the past we've heard an interview done 55 years ago oh yeah and we heard what peter paul and mary sounded like back in the day i, I just we got to give a round of applause for that one. that's the kind of applause that they drew wherever they went they were certainly a phenomenon and i am so thankful that i had my time with them Oh, yeah. I mean, those kind of memories, those kinds of experiences, they just cannot be matched by anything else. And there's one thing that you'll know uh, or that you can keep with you uh, the rest of your life is knowing that uh, you had a chance to do something that very few people uh, had an opportunity to do. Absolutely. And I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And uh, this was an incredible story. <laughs>